When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Brandy Schilace about her new book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, a monkey's head, the Pope's neuroscientist, and the quest to transplant the soul. This delightfully macabre, true tale of a brilliant and eccentric surgeon, and his quest to transplant the human soul. Dr. White was a friend of two popes and a founder of the Vatican Commission on Bioethics. He developed life-saving neurosurgical techniques still used in hospitals today, and was nominated for the Nobel Prize. This fascinating, provocative tale follows the decades-long quest into tangled matters of science, Cold War politics, and faith, revealing the complex and often murky ethics of experimentation and remarkable innovations that today save patients from certain death. Well, Brandy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So as we have just witnessed, um, really unprecedented times of uh, the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience. Oh, absolutely. So much of my research is strangely connected to concepts of of death and dying. Um, one of my previous books was specifically about that, and I talk a lot about death and that that subtle line between life and death in the present one. And so um, as the pandemic rolled on and we saw increasing numbers of people suddenly having to come to grips with death, with dying, with grief on a large scale, and the the various ways that affects us psychologically, um, it, it didn't just impact me as, a, as an individual, it did, but it also impacted me as a researcher. And I ended up doing a lot of talks with uh, the New York Times, with NPR, about what this means for us as a culture, because we will not be the same after this. And so um, it, it impacted my work in a kind of direct way, and then indirectly as well, because I already work from home, but now I am 
you might say I'm an early adopter of uh, the quarantine lifestyle, but um, suddenly I was I was working from home. My spouse was working from. Everyone was working from home, and you had this sense of isolation at the same time that you had this grief kind of happening. So for me, um, it was deeply impacting and also a point of uh, of reflecting on how this changes communities. And you yourself, did you develop any new habits that you adopted after uh, you came back, uh, went back to sort of a bit more normal life, if you can put it this way? Um, you know, I I don't know that I, I have changed that dramatically in terms of habits. I did end up raising chickens. So <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like it's my new hobby is I, I have quite a large backyard and now I have chickens. Um, and that was a, a way of making th- there to be something else to care about and take care of in your life to kind of distract you. Because I think it's been it's psychologically difficult to see this kind of um, this sort of thing happen. And then also the isolation, too. My life hasn't gone back to normal exactly, partly because I don't think I have a very normal life. But um, it is interesting watching my friends and family reapproaching the social sphere and talking about how there's things that didn't used to bother them that now really do. I've never liked crowds, but my partner, who is normally very social, um, now he doesn't like them either. We, we've taken to looking at the press of bodies quite differently than I think we used to. So you already mentioned that you're a researcher. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Certainly. So I have a somewhat unique and um, (laughs) peculiar line of work. So essentially, I work between fields. Um, And what I mean by that is I I have worked in history. I've worked in medical museums. I've worked in the public sphere. I've been a public intellectual, but I also run an academic journal called Medical Humanities that is about social justice in medicine. And I'm a full-time author. I write for various um, magazines, Scientific American, Wired. I also write books for a living. And most of my books are about medical history. And they also intersect with issues of justice and finally, I'm the host of a of a show called The Peculiar Book Club, which, again, intersects with all of those things. We look at really weird science, like how strange science sometimes seems like science fiction. But in the end, um, the truth is often stranger than fiction. So those are the, the different aspects of my career. But to me, they all sort of feel related. And uh, all of my research and all of my, my PhD, everything has been focused on those intersections of health and the human. So you mentioned earlier that you also study death and dying. How did you get interested mm-hmm. in that topic? So um, I, I grew up in an underground house in abandoned coal mining territory near a graveyard. So that's part of it. Wow. Uh, it was a strange way of uh, an unusual upbringing. I had a pet raccoon. Um, but uh, my, my parents both suffered health-wise. And I live in the United States where there's not national health care. So it put a great strain on the family. My mother suffered uh, several different times from cancer, and she's a cancer survivor. And my father has had a total of four different uh, heart attacks and has a pacemaker and defibrillator. And there were different times in my growing up that I thought I was going to lose both of them or that by virtue of them being um, using medical care, we were going to go bankrupt and lose everything. And so I think, you know, the idea of health and medicine and death, 
uh, were always close companions for my young life. There was this sense in which I never, I was never able to take life for granted or even the longevity of my own parents. So, um, you know, you can't live that closely to something without it becoming familiar to you. And also I think a way that we handle our fears is to try and get new knowledge about it. So I began researching that area pretty young, um, even in my, you know, primary and uh, secondary school years. So you mentioned uh, the journal Medical Humanities that you are um, an editor of, and I absolutely love this journal, <laughs> even, <laughs> even though I'm a basic scientist, but uh, it, it just it's just perfect uh, uh, we- weekend and evening read. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could tell us, how did you become an editor? Certainly. Well, it's funny. This is the second large journal that I've actually been an editor for. Um, I was the managing editor of Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry for 10 years, and that's a medical anthropology journal. And uh, medical anthropology has some interesting affinities for uh, medical humanities as well, because you have this sense that health is primary, but yet it's not necessarily the medical clinician commenting on it. It's scientists and social scientists and historians. You know, it's a, it's a collaborative approach and it comes from a lot of different disciplines. So I used to run a blog called The Daily Dose, which is a medical humanities blog. And when I was actually approached by medical humanities from BMJ, um, when their uh, editor was retiring and they asked me if I would like to apply. So, um, so that's how I ended up in medical humanities. Um, I, I'm sort of early to this approach. I think in the United States, a lot of medical humanities was much more oriented around narrative medicine and kind of really privileged the medical gaze in ways that was uh, is quite different in Europe. And so I, I adopted more of the European view of medical humanities a bit broader and a sense that um, the humanities themselves have something to say about human medicine and human culture and the way we uh, have ethical responsibilities. So um, I was able to take the journal in that direction. And it's it's been a really exciting time. We, we've diversified quite a lot. We spent a lot of time on LGBTQ rights and uh, disability studies and, you know, just um, other minority rights and things like that. So social justice has become a really big uh, and important part of what we do. And you had such a multifaceted career. So I was wondering if you have uh, anything to say, maybe a word of advice to our younger career listeners. Yes, I do. Um, for one thing, I think uh, there's a lot of people will tell you what you what you can't do. And that's those are tend not to be the voices you should listen to. I have said about my career, building the things I could not find in the world. I wanted there to be a place where the humanities and health work together toward the betterment uh, of mankind. And I wanted the humanities to have a role that wasn't just, you know, that was more important than I think humanities often are treated um, sometimes as secondary. And I wanted to make that a primary focus. And I also wanted a place to belong. I'm a, I'm a strange person in some ways. <laughs> and as a child, you know, I grew up wishing I had community and I've endeavored to create those communities uh, around me. And I think that's the most valuable thing. If you don't have that drive, um, then you know success follows your love of doing something. So don't worry about, you know, 
have I chosen the right path? There will be paths. <laughs> there will be a lot of different avenues that you can take. And I think um, follow what it is that really moves you. And and by moves you, I mean, what what makes you excited? What can you spend long hours on and not actually get tired of? Um, I thought I wanted to be a, a professor who taught. I did become a professor, but it turns out that teaching wasn't really my my principal gift. And you know, it was okay to go. Well, that didn't really work out. I'm going to leave this tenure track job and I'm going to go do something else. And a lot of people are really afraid to take those risks, but if you can take them safely um, and you're supported, I think risks are a really valuable thing. Oh, this is truly inspiring. Thank you for this. <laughs> <laughs> so your latest book is Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, a monkey's head, a Pope's neuroscientist and the quest to transplant the soul. <laughs> so I suppose we can just spend all time discussing the title, but <laughs> can you tell us uh, briefly what it, it is about and how did you come to writing it? So I have spent a long time in medical and health and science history, and I had never heard this story. So partly this comes about because a colleague of mine Who, who I had interviewed and worked with during my book on death research, uh, who's a neuroscientist, uh, neuro he contacted me and he said, you know, I have something down in my office I really think you should take a look at. So I went to visit him at the um, hospital, university hospital, and I sat down and he handed me a shoebox, which I was not expecting. And when a, when a neurologist or a neuroscientist hands you a shoebox, you begin wondering just, just where it's all going. Um, And he said, there's something really interesting in here I want you to see. So I took the lid off and inside was an old composition notebook, the kind with graph paper inside that sometimes uh, that scientific researchers use when they're in, in their graduate studies. And it was very, very old. It was dog-eared. It had clearly been well used and it was completely full of text. It was cramped writing, all of these tables and graphs and some little rusty flex, which I later found out was blood. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and it was the experimental notebook of a man named Dr. Robert White, who successfully transplanted a primate's head onto another primate's body in 1971. And it, and it lived for nine days. He essentially proved that a brain could exist outside of its original um, <laughs> housing. And, and this was a, a very, very strange very interesting experiment that he was doing for lots of complicated reasons, but I had never heard of it before. And I couldn't, I thought, ha, ha, we've transplanted a head and no, shouldn't I know? So that was really the hook is I just couldn't believe this story existed. And I wanted to know more about the context. How could something like this occur and who would support it? And it turns out to be very much related to the history of transplant science the history of human rights and animal rights, and even um, particularly related to the Cold War and the sort of American race against the Soviet Union to be first uh, in terms of their medical and scientific discoveries. And so all of these things come together around the life of this gentleman named Dr. Robert White, who had two nicknames. Um, he called himself Mr. Humble <laughs> and the uh, and PETA, the, the animal rights group, they referred to him as Dr. Butcher. And so this book <laughs> explores these two sides of his life, both surgeon saving lives, you know, a very devout Catholic, believing in the everlasting soul, 
and a neuroscientist who was taking the heads off of things and was willing to try a human head transplant, which he thought was also going to be a soul transplant. So that's that's really the the kernel of the book. Oh, so many questions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's delve into some of the scientific topics that you address in your book. And uh, can we start with the early history of the transplant medicine? Yes, um, this was really critical to me. I, I, I felt that there was no way of understanding this story outside of the race to transplant organs, which the very first one didn't happen uh, successfully until the 1950s. And it had to do with twins, because of course, we know now that if you transplant an organ into someone else's body, um, their body will reject it. And that's that's due to the immune response. So they were just learning that, but they didn't know how to overcome it. So the very first transplant of a kidney was the Herrick twins, and it happened at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston, which is where Dr. Robert White was a student. So he was there when Joseph Murray did this. Joseph Murray goes on to win a Nobel Prize for that surgery. So this is the first time. And immediately following the success of that, you had doctors scrambling to see what else they could transplant. So it's not very long after that first successful kidney transplant that you have people experimenting with immune suppressants and you have Christian Barnard in South Africa performing the first heart transplant. But there's a big difference between a kidney transplant and a heart transplant because you have two kidneys. And the Herrick twins, one kidney is donated and the, the, you know, the other one stays in place and they were both okay. But if you take someone's heart to transplant it, they die. <laughs> so when is it okay to take a heart? And this institutes a massive debate about where the edges of life and death really are. So for instance, you, you, we know about the term brain dead, right? We, we know, okay, this is a, the body is living, the heart is still beating, but the brain is dead. But where do we get that definition from? What are the criteria? Who decides that a patient is brain dead enough to, to donate their organs, uh, their vital organs? So this became a real question and there was um, quite a bit of tension around the second heart transplant that Christian Barnard did in South Africa because he took the heart of a black man during apartheid and put it into a white man. And many, uh, many, you know, justice and rights advocates were worried. They thought, well, aren't, aren't they just going to harvest black bodies to save white lives. And, you know, what's to say they won't let us die so they can have our organs. So th there was a lot of um, real conflict and fear around those early heart transplants that meant we needed to, to get a commission together. It ended up being a Harvard ad hoc commission to try and decide, could we agree on exactly where the line between life and death is? And what was most surprising to me is that um, while we do organ transplants all the time now, the definition of brain death that we have isn't a medical definition, it's a legal definition. And it was decided upon in a court case in the United States. And so that means um, our definition for brain death is actually not standard. That means it's different from country to country and it changes. So it, it's, there's a reason why there's still debates um, about where the end the end and the edge of life is, is because we're we, we know what life is and we know what death is. But that that subtle murky line between 
continues even now to elude us, even though we have a pretty good standard criteria, we don't exactly have a definition. That is truly fascinating. And nowadays, uh, is it something that really impacts organ donation systems? Less so usually now, because most people, you know, you're dealing with people who've already consented and a lot of people have, you know, living wills or other um, information already set up so that it's easier to make those decisions. Early on, it was a problem because they were there wasn't a body or um, an organ donation program as yet. So the doctors were deciding to take organs and who do you ask and who gives permission. So it was much muddier than than it is now. But that doesn't mean it's not complicated. Um, There's something called the red market. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a bit like the black market. But it's a trade in organs, and um, it's uh, it's it's of course illegal, but it concerns things like sometimes people who are impoverished will be forced to sell organs to the red market. So they might sell a kidney or something like that to make money. There's also the fear that sometimes um, we don't know where the organs are coming from in the red market. Are these political prisoners? Are they, you know, people who, there's all kinds of questions around it. Um, There's a really good book on the red market by, I think it's Scott Carney, that that talks about these these issues. So it's it's not so much in the legal in the legal ways that we use organs. We have pretty good criteria, so we know we're taking the organs at the right time from the right people for the right reasons. But that doesn't mean that we don't have deeply troubling ethical issues still surrounding organ transplant even today. So you already mentioned a couple of organs that can be transplanted. Can you tell us what kind of organs cannot be transplanted? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, there was a time when when you would not think that a uterus could be transplanted, and yet now we have successful uterus transplants. And in fact, the very first uterine transplant was attempted um, during World War II time period. So it's it's not actually as new as we might think. There was a time when you would have thought we wouldn't be able to transplant faces, and and now we do that as well. So hearts and kidneys and lungs and even sexual organs can be transplanted. And now also things like eyes um, can be transplanted too. Uh, There have been people who have had hand transplants where they've had whole hands um, attached that used to belong to someone else. Livers, uh, there's all kinds of things that can be transplanted, but the the sort of... um, Call it the holy grail, perhaps. The concept that you you couldn't possibly transplant a brain the way we see happen, say, in Frankenstein movies. And yet, Dr. White suggested that that was not just possible, but that it would happen within the next 50 years. So he set about proving that. Um, and to me, that is, uh, it sounds at once like great hubris. <laughs> But at the same time, Dr. White's reasoning were strangely driven by his faith in God. So um, he believed in the soul and he was very Catholic. Uh, He had 10 children, so a lot Catholic. And... um, ended up being friends with two different popes, Pope Paul VI and Pope John Paul II, and helped establish the Vatican Council for Bioethics. So for him, it wasn't a um, just an ego trip, though I think some of that was probably involved. It was also, in his mind, a way of saving brains and souls from bodies that were dying. So here we start with this fascinating story of transplanting brain, 
or shall I say head? So shall I say head? He he kind of does both. Well, I'll start with the brain because I actually mm-hmm. think that's weirder <laughs> than the head transplant. The most astonishing thing to me is not necessarily the head transplant, but what he called brain isolation. So for for a long time, uh, and, and the Soviet Union, they were doing this too, what's called isolation of organs. And that means getting an organ out while it's still alive, which is obviously very important if you're going to transplant them, right? We want the heart to be a beating heart to put it in someone else's body, right? So, um, so this concept of the living organ is very important. But the brain is more than just, it's not just a heart. It's not just a lung. The brain is also you. It's our processing unit. And it's where most of us think of the kind of mind and personality as residing, right? Or at least most of it residing there. So if you're isolating the brain and you're pulling the brain out of the body, it's not just a living organ. It's potentially a living being. So he sets about doing this with a macaque monkey and how he manages it. And actually, I should probably um, do a short, a sort of brief trigger warning for this one, because this can be somewhat upsetting. Uh, It was to me. Um, So just so you guys know, this is an animal experiment. But he basically takes the one monkey and he uses a larger donor monkey to serve as basically a life support system. And he takes the blood and fluids from that monkey and feeds it, slowly replumbing the veins of the other monkeys so that the head is uh, separated from its original body and being supported by the other monkey. And then he begins to take that head apart to get the brain out while still making sure the brain is being flushed with fluids and nutrients and blood. And in the end, he has this little naked bulb of brain and it's hooked up to EEG monitors and it is still ticking away. It's still sending the signals to the EEG, the peaks and the valleys. Ostensibly, it's still processing, so therefore still alive. So does that mean it's still the same monkey? And this is a very strange question because it means while we have brain death and living bodies, you could potentially have the reverse, which is brain alive with a dead body. And that's just a very strange concept. So that was the very first experiment that he did. And to perfect it, he had to cool the brain. The brain's very greedy for oxygen and it gets damaged very easily if there's a lack of oxygen. So he found that if you super cooled the brain, it was less greedy and less likely to get damaged. And that ultimately leads to his work in therapeutic hypothermia, which we still use today um, and was in fact used on my dad <laughs> for his um, his open heart surgery. So it's it's very interesting how these things interconnect. So you also draw parallels with Jekyll and Hyde. And um, why is that? <laughs> Well, so I just told you about the brain isolation and, you know, that proves a lot, but White wasn't really satisfied. And the reason he wasn't satisfied is because he couldn't get anyone to agree with him that the living monkey was still inside the brain. And he wanted to prove that. And the reason he wanted to prove that is he really wanted everyone to see the brain as the repository of the soul. So he continues, he ends up going to the Soviet Union and learning from Vladimir Demikov, who had done some uh, strange experiments creating surgically two-headed dogs. And he comes back and he decides to take the whole head, not just the brain, and to take the whole head and attach it to a new body to prove that the head could wake up and show you by the motion of its eyes, its tongue, its mouth, et cetera, that it was still alive, still processing, still the same monkey. And he ends up doing a number of these experiments. Um, and, you know, this was really upsetting to people. A lot of people said, we don't really see the 
point of what you're of what these are what are you doing these for you know what is the reason behind this this seems this seems cruel to the monkey it doesn't seem right what are you trying to prove and so in that respect he he is someone who becomes very obsessed with proving this important thing to himself right that this that you live beyond the body and as a catholic believer you can kind of see how that was related to the way he thought about life and death so when he ultimately manages to transplant the monkey head successfully and it wakes up and it lives for 9 days without its original body he says have i come to the place where i can now transplant the human soul and you know th- there's something very victor frankenstein about that or very you know it's it seems like you're pushing the envelope in ways you really shouldn't do and that just because you can do something might not mean you should do something Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, the 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 Mr. Humble portion of Dr. White's life, he saved so many people's lives. He was a surgeon. He performed something like 10,000 brain surgeries. He invented surgeries to save you know, people's children. He uh, did some really complex things to save a girl named Caroline. He, you know, he was so caring and everyone in Cleveland really felt, really loved him. And he used to go to McDonald's and see patients for free for consultations. You know, so on the other hand, he's this very well-beloved figure. This, he's a father, he's a, you know, a believer, he's all of these things. He's a good churchgoer. And he's also taking heads off of things in a very obsessive quest to prove that the soul exists. So I, that was really interesting to me that he seems to have these two different personalities and they're not tidy. Like it's not unlike Jekyll and Hyde where there seems to be very serious division between the two characters. Dr. White is a whole person whose, whose lives kind of blend and bleed together and isn't that true for for all of us in in a lot of ways? We we are conflicted creatures. We do have dual desires and and wants and needs. And so that made him an interesting figure because there's times in the book when he's very clearly a heroic figure, and there's times when he's very clearly not the hero of the story. <laughs> so of course, Dr. White had to have people who supported him, and he also perhaps had uh, people who did not. So I was wondering what kind of arguments did people who support him have for him to be doing well, these experiments? I think my my most surprising uh, support for Dr. White was actually a patient of his who volunteered to have the head transplant surgery done. And that sounds very strange. You might think, why would anyone want to have that done to them? Because of course, if you sever the spinal cord to transplant a head, your body, the body that you're attached to will be paralyzed. So it's not a, it's not a great outcome. But a man named Craig Vitovitz contacted Dr. White. He had been a tetraplegic man since his early youth when he was in a diving accident. So he couldn't really move his arms and legs. However, he had a really full life. He traveled, he was married, he had children, he had his own business. He'd worked for NASA. He built a home specifically for the needs of wheelchair-bound people. Uh, He developed a better wheelchair based partly on a golf cart so that it was more mobile. Um, He was full of life. But his, as often happens with tetraplegic patients, his organs had started to suffer. And even though he was only in his 40s, his kidneys were shutting down. And he wanted a kidney transplant. But at the time because of his disability, he was told he wasn't a good candidate, 
which today we recognize that as, as ableism, right? The treatment of a disabled person as though their life isn't worth as much as an abled person. But at the time, there weren't a lot of options for him. So he contacted Dr. White. This was in the early 90s. And he offered himself essentially as a patient to say, you know, they won't give me an organ transplant. I'm willing to be an experimental patient for an entire body transplant. And he was a fierce defender of Dr. White as somebody who saw that, you know, any means necessary to save a human life was worth trying. And I was I was deeply moved by that because I think it's very tempting to see this merely in its ghoulishness, you know, disembodied brains and monkey heads and the butchery of it, which was which was really there. There were reasons why the animal rights activists did not like him. But at the same time, this gave me a brand new perspective of the kinds of people who supported Dr. White and their reasons for it. So what kind of ethical questions were raised about his experiments at the time? One of his greatest opponents were uh, animal rights activists. And at the time, uh, so today, PETA, or the, um, for the, uh, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals here in the United States, had not yet begun. It was just starting. It was just two people, basically. Um, and one of them was Ingrid Newkirk, who I interviewed, actually, for this book. And there were other animal rights activists as well who were, you know, very concerned about the kinds of experiments he was doing and the why. Um, You know, he'd already certainly proven that these things could be done, and yet he continued to do the surgeries. There were, I, you know, up to three hundred different experiments. Um, He also performed experiments taking half the brain out of monkeys and seeing how they developed with only. Uh, with only one hemisphere. And, you know, they were just, he had reasons for doing all of this, but animal rights activists felt that he was needlessly damaging and torturing um, these animals. And now Dr. White never violated any of the rules for the treatment of animals at the time, but the rules are a lot better now than they were then. So it's also, you know, the animals in his in his labs wouldn't have been treated as well as they are now simply because the laws hadn't come to that point. So they had real reasons to feel like he was overstepping the bounds. Um, another complaint, when this actually came from the medical community itself, uh, particularly someone named Dr. Silver, is that, you know, we're never going to actually use this on humans. It's never going to be a common surgery meant to save human lives. So why are you performing? Why are you spending the money in this way? Why are you investing in this way? And the third the third question might be the most interesting. Um, they said, well, okay, organ transplant is happening, just you know, as I talked about before, the history of it. And that's wonderful. But there are long wait lists. There's children on these wait lists waiting for lungs. There's, you know, who have cystic fibrosis. There's parents wait on this wait list for new hearts. There's, you know, all of these people desperate for these organs. And if you give someone an entire body for their head, that's all the organs which could have gone to other people, right? So you're not, you know, maybe you could have saved five individuals with a single organ donor body, but instead you're giving it to one person. So who decides how much is life worth? And I thought that was a really interesting ethical question to ask as well. So should this kind of research be viewed as essential to our advancement of science? Is it really necessary? 
You know, um, at the risk of of badly punning my own book, I'm of two minds about it, really. <laughs> um, I think that there were different points at my research where I thought this should absolutely not be happening. And then there were different points at my research. For instance, you know, his research led to therapeutic hypothermia, which they use for heart patients and brain surgeries, and which helps someone in my own family and might not have been discovered if he hadn't been doing these experiments. And so you look at that and go, oh, well... And then you have the statement by Craig Vitovitz, who says, hey, you know, his work is is showing that disabled lives matter. So it, I don't know. It's it's hard to come down on one side or the other. I feel like I see everyone's point uh, about both why you should and why you shouldn't. So what I like to say, I guess where I've ended up at is simply that um, the wrong thing is to become so obsessed with finding the answer that you're not paying attention to the consequences along the way. Because we get to the the cans of science before we get to the shoulds sometimes. Um, I like to quote a French theorist named Paul Virilio, who said, um, he was a theorist of accidents, which I think is great. Uh, but he said that when you invent a plane, you automatically also invent the plane crash. So our technologies always bring with them their own disasters, you know, even if they haven't occurred yet. And sometimes we get so invested in the work and we're moving at such speed, especially now in the digital age, that we almost invent the plane crash before the plane. So I hope that people walk away understanding that none of us can abdicate the responsibility for medical ethics. Like that's something we all have to care about because we, we, you don't want that in the hands of only one man or even one system of, of, of operation. And of course, a burning question on everybody's mind. So where is the science of head transplantation, of human head transplantation nowadays? Well, that's an interesting question because um, Dr. White actually completed the human head transplant protocol and all the way up to the practice and how you practice um, organ transplants. And it's also how Joseph Murray practiced the kidney transplant is you do it on cadavers, uh, very fresh cadavers. So Dr. White performed a head transplant on two fresh cadavers and had finished his human protocol and all of the had made all of the scaled up interventions and changes to the surgery that would be necessary but then never went through with the surgery um this is a variety of reasons there were cost prohibitions there was trying to find uh, a hospital willing to take on the risk of actually doing something like that so ultimately it never happens but technically he brought it as far as it as you could. So his work was picked up uh, not too long, I would say about a decade, maybe maybe 12 years ago um, or so, by another man named Sergio Canavero, who is a surgeon in Italy. And he has subsequently um, said that he is still working towards doing a human head transplant. He even had a patient lined up for a while, but the patient ended up um, stepping away and saying, no, I, I changed my mind. I don't want to have the surgery done. So it hasn't happened. But according to Sergio Canavero, um, it's possible. And, you know, he feels like it'll happen any minute now, but it hasn't yet. And some of this comes down to also the, 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 we, you will be paralyzed and, and, you know, is it worthwhile trying to fix that first, etc. Um, but regardless of all of those things, I think I think one of the questions to ask is, will you still be 
uh, you on the other side of something like that, because Dr. White believed we were all just sort of brains on legs. But that's not necessarily so. Um, one thing we've learned, say, for instance, from the LGBT community, uh, particularly the trans community, is how important identity and personhood and embodiment really are. So, you know, waking up in some other body is bound to be more than just a little disorienting, not to mention the fact that some of our neurons are in our guts. Some of our, you know, the way our hormones affect our brains are going to be all radically different if you are attached to a totally different system. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's some philosophical, ethical questions to ask beyond the practical ones of whether or not we can actually get it done. Excellent. And that leads me to my next topic. So now thinking about the big picture and maybe reflecting a little bit. So in what way our perception of these kind of experiments um, in biology and medicine are shaped by, by the political, economic and social forces of the day? That's an excellent question because they really, really are. <laughs> um, even more so. And I, 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 you know, the book, it takes place during the Cold War era. And one of the things that's quite fascinating is people ask, you know, how how in the world did he fund these weird experiments? Like, how did you get the money to take the heads off things? Because taking heads off of things upsets people. Um, and they're always surprised to find out that that was government funded. <laughs> he had government grants to do that. Well, why would the government fund head transplant surgeries and other experiments? It, it comes down to to that contest. So you have to think that after the Second World War, there were a lot of unknowns, right? Um, the atom bomb was dropped and people just had no idea there was anything like that powerful in the world. So suddenly there was a lot of maybe science can do anything ideas. Added to that was the fall of the Iron Curtain. So, you know, when, when the Soviet Union really closed itself off to the rest of the world, nobody knew exactly what they were up to over there. And periodically, these, these films would be leaked. Uh, intentionally. And, you know, one of them came out and um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, I'm afraid, Bronyanko, I think. Um, and it showed, you know, lungs breathing on their own without bodies and hearts beating on their own without bodies. And it showed a, a dog that was just a head, but seemed to still be alive and all of these crazy things. And it was called the reanimation of, you know, basically the reanimation of dead tissue. And it really stirred up a hornet's nest in the West because everyone thought, my gosh, have they figured out how to bring people back from the dead? Like what, what's possible? And if it seems strange that people thought that was possible, you have to understand that at the time, the government was also trying to research whether or not you could control missiles telekinetically. So um, there was a lot of things that we weren't sure about. Along comes this video after the kidney transplant, right around 1955, of Vladimir Demikov's two-headed dogs. He basically attaches a second head to a mastiff, and both the heads are awake, and they perk up their ears, and they drink milk, and do a lot of other things for the camera. And it hit like a like a bomb in the medical community. And everyone thought, oh my gosh, the Soviets are so much further ahead of us. What are we going to do? So there was a race, not just the space race, which was happening simultaneously. But there was also this race to who's going to figure out the fuzzy edges of life and death, who's going to figure out organ transplant, who's going to be best at, you know, preserving life. And uh, Dr. White himself said that he and his colleagues were afraid 
that the Soviet Union had somehow figured out like a way to make immortal sur- soldiers or something like that. And, and none of this turned out to be true, but that fed into that contest. And as a result, money was available for things that later after the fall of the Soviet Union weren't, you know, people just weren't as interested in. So that very political climate of contest and fear and wonder and, you know, all, all of that, spying, all kinds of things that went on during that time period really drove this. And, and Dr. White goes to Moscow and he's he's basically told by his, um, by the FBI, by, or by the government anyway, that he needs to come back and tell them everything he sees. And so he's almost a spy in his own right. It's a very, very intriguing time period. And, you know, Dr. White stays the same. He's the same guy. But then all of a sudden it's the 80s. And, you know, the the Soviet Union is basically getting on the brink of, of disappearing. And we have the, the walls are coming down. All these things are happening. And instead, people care about saving the whales and being kind to animals. And he's not prepared for that shift quite. So as political ideas change, what we think is okay in science changes with it. So in the Cold War era, people weren't as shocked by his experiments. Mm. And then in the 80s and 90s, you had much more backlash for the types of things he was up to. So what sort of debates and talks uh, on ethics must we have nowadays to really manage how we conduct and allow such experimentation to take place? Well, one of the things that, uh, as I, I talked a little bit before about my general interest in medicine and the humanities, is that there are some questions science isn't built to answer. Science is wonderful. Science can tell you everything about life. It can even tell you what happens after you die. But it's not very good at telling us about what dying is like or how to deal with it. Right? <laughs> um, and a similar kind of thing comes up in terms of our science and technological development. Science can't tell you what's right for the community. It can't give you social justice. It can't you know, you can't give you the ethics, ethics and social justice and managing grief and all of these other things. That's, that's what the humanities are for. And I think so, in my opinion, it's not just about what kinds of debates and conversations we need to be having, but who we invite to have those debates and conversations. And that means bringing uh, medical doctors, researchers, scientists, um, biologists together with social justice uh, warriors, you know, people who are activists, historians, um, people who study literature and know a lot about critical analysis, people who are anthropologists and ethnographists or ethnographers. And so I, I think to me, the solution is really not allowing any one field to bear the burden of deciding what's right um, as we move into the future. So from your perspective, oh, what are the implications of uh, pushing the boundaries of science for our wider society? I think that we are built in as humans. We are always going to push the boundaries. I, I don't, I mean, I'm a historian and I can tell you it's just never been a time when we weren't doing that. But I do think that the the consequences are quite grave um, or can be. Look at, you know, right now the pandemic has really showed up a lot of our, uh, a lot of places where we don't have equality. So in the rollout of vaccines, which countries get them and which people get them first and in what ways are disabled people being left behind and what ways are minorities being left behind. Uh, climate change disproportionately affects 
impoverished, uh, impoverished peoples who can't move out of the way of the flood zone or the baking plains or the drought region. So um, I think that you know it has implications beyond just the practice of science. It has implications for living and creating a livable world where you know where we're taking care of each other. Oh yes, for sure. And what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, surprised you the most? Let's see. Well, I had to, I ended up traveling to Moscow myself to do this research. So I, uh, I just up and went by myself to, to, to Russia and I'd never been there and I don't speak Russian. So, um, it was an interesting experience, but I, I can decipher acrylic a little bit. So it was not, I wasn't completely on my own. But while I was there, I was really impressed with um, how we have still in the United States created these boogeymen, right? This idea of what things will be like when you get there. And I arrived to find this beautiful city, this vibrant place with friendly people. And, you know, you're not taught to expect that. You're taught to, I think, especially in the United States, um, you're taught to think that anywhere else isn't as good. But it, instead, you know, all of my research that has taken me to different countries, different places, you know, Norway, France, Mexico, all the different places I've been, um, each one opens me up to understanding just how much better off we are when we see the value of everyone and see that everyone has humanity. So I know that wasn't specifically related to the book, but it was certainly um, a, a beautiful experience for me to, to have that and to see that. I think the most, ex um, the most unusual thing I discovered in all of this was that <laughs> there's not a law uh, against performing a head transplant. I think hmm. I assumed there would be. But there's not. Um, it's essentially experimental surgeries are the purview of individual hospitals and departments. So they decide. <laughs> um, the government isn't necessarily, at least in the United States, the government's not actually laying down these laws. And that's interesting because we do have laws against, say, cloning human embryos, but there isn't a law against transplanting heads. And I, I think I was, it's a small thing, but it was very surprising. <laughs> And what kind of questions do you normally get at dinner parties? Um, it's interesting. If you walk into a room and say, did you know a head transplant happened? And then you just walk out. Everyone follows you to be like, what? A when? How? <laughs> and then you tell them that it happened in the 1970s. And they that's just mind-blowing. Like, oh, back then? How? I don't understand. Um, so, so a lot of the questions I get are, A, why have I not heard about this? And I think the answer is because people probably don't want you to. <laughs> it's not necessarily a bright, shining moment of, of history. Um, the other question I get is, how were they capable of doing these things so long ago? And to that, I have a slightly different answer. Um, my present research, and I published some of this in Scientific American not long ago, is about the first trans clinic, the first clinic performing trans surgeries for sexual reassignment was built in 1919. And that always blows people's minds. We, I think we feel like we're so far ahead or so far along in science and technology that that surely it was the Stone Age 100 years ago. And it wasn't. Um, we've, we've not come as far sometimes as we think we have. We've come far. But uh, it only takes you a minute to look at modern forceps to realize we haven't come that far. Um, that's the way they looked in the 18th century too. So, uh, you know, we have certainly... 
the the changes in technology in terms of digital technology are amazing. The fact that we can visualize bodies and we've got MRI technology and things that are even better than MRI, that's amazing. But when it comes down to like, you know, babies get into the world pretty much the same way, hearts pretty much function the same way, we, we might not be quite so far from our past as we think. If you had the possibility to transplant your head or brain in the near future, where would that be to? Some, some other mm-hmm. animal or robot or something like that? You know, I quite like the idea of flying. I think that'd be great. But um, I'd have to be in a really large bird. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that would work out. Um, I don't know. I, I have a complicated relationship to my body anyway, because my body is uh, one that doesn't always work right. Um, I have a, a chronic illness that I deal with, but at the same time, I don't know that I'd want to trade it. Um, it. You know, it makes you who you are. So probably I would, uh, even given the chance, I would probably just choose to stay in my, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit like your first car. You know, I had a, I, not everybody has ever owned a first car but in the United States. It's quite common. And my first car was an absolute dump. It was a complete wreck and I knew how to drive it, but you had to do special things. You know, you had to like say incantations and kill a chicken at midnight and shift gears with a <laughs> screwdriver to make it work, but it was yours. And I think that's how I feel about my body as well. Um, that I'll I'll just I'll just keep hold of it even with all of its problems. Yeah, maybe transplant chicken's head at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yes. So um so I mentioned just briefly about that trans clinic in 1919. And uh writing an article for Scientific American actually opened up a really interesting page in history, and I didn't realize just how rich it was. So I'm working on a book right now looking at uh, interwar Berlin and the way hormone, uh, the discoveries of hormones, which was new, and discoveries of hormone science were teaching people about the fact that sexuality and gender characteristics were actually biological and not just mental choices and moral choices that were made. And so I think that's a really interesting time period to look at because um, if something is biological, then it's natural. And if it's natural, then it can't be sinful. And so it spurred on a revolution to try and overturn some of the laws that still made it uh, impossible to be you know, gay or, or trans or, or you know, anywhere on the spectrum that didn't seem to conform. So there was a great movement to overturn these laws based on the hormone science. And it shows you the ways in which um, science can actually work towards the good of society because it gives you this information that allows you to make different choices. And where can our listeners find more information about what you do and also your book? Well, I am, so my name is Brandy Skilache, uh, and uh, that is spelled S-C-H-I-L-L-A-C-E. And if you look me up on Google, it turns out there are no other Brandy Skilaches in the world. So <laughs> <laughs> so if you look me up, I'm the only one and all of my things will turn up. Uh, my website is brandyskilache.com and I am on Twitter and Facebook. And actually, if there's a platform, I'm probably on it <laughs> in some capacity. Um, and uh, my books are available in multiple bookstores uh, internationally. And you can also get signed copies from a link on my website if you want me to have one signed for you. And uh, yeah, and my work appears in Wired and Scientific American, um, Huffington Post sometimes. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the places, Globe and Mail. 
um, yes, so I'm out there. I'm out there and I hope to, uh, to connect with more of you. Oh, and the book club is out there too. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this gory but truly fascinating discussion. <laughs> thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it.